You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. GTMC listeners, this is Rupert. This week's interview is with Laurent Bouzereau, the man behind uh, many special features that you've probably seen and enjoyed. Um, for directors the likes of Steven Spielberg, Brian De Palma, Alfred Hitchcock, and many others. Uh, he's got a book on Hitchcock out right now, actually, called Hitchcock Piece by Piece. We talk about that in the interview. And we also talk about his uh, love of Charles Bronson, which is definitely a bonus for Gentleman's Guide listeners. Um, just a very nice man and someone I've met in person and is a truly passionate film fan um, like you know no other. So I really appreciate him taking the time to do the interview. I hope you enjoy it. So when did you get started doing special features? Well, I, you know, I was um, I was working in feature development at Disney for Beth Midler, and um, I found out that the Criterion Collection was um, doing something on Carrie, uh, Brian De Palma's Carrie, and and uh, and so I um, tried to to find them, and this is. You know, in the early 90s, before the internet, before any of this, so you actually had to do a lot of work to find somebody's phone number and and uh, and get in touch with them. And as I was trying to get in touch with them, they were trying to get in touch with me actually because I had written a book on Brian De Palma, and they wanted me to do the audio commentary. So it was kind of a weird, uh, you know, meeting of the minds, I would say, and. Uh, and so that was the first time I got involved with this kind of work, and it was just amazing. I mean, not not only, you know, from uh, uh, from the point of view of being involved and being the person talking and 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 sharing my sort of enthusiasm for for the film, but um, also discovering something that that had been a, a dream of mine, uh, which was to document and talk about. Old movies or older movies, movies of the seventies that I grew on, that, that I grew up on. Um, you, you know, for the longest time, it was like, oh my God, I, I wish I could do something on on Jaws. I wish I could I could talk about this movie or that movie. And, and I'm like, there will never be an outlet for it unless I do a book. You know, and uh, you know, I was. Uh, I moved to America in the 80s, and even though I had a first book published when I was, like, 25, uh, um, uh, it was uh, it was difficult to, to get books published. So, uh, basically, you know, I, I just couldn't believe that suddenly there was an outlet to talk about stuff I was passionate about, you know? And, and so I got involved with uh, Criterion, and I did a few projects for them, and then someone from Criterion uh, mentioned me to the then head of post-production at Amblin, 
uh, Marty Cohen, and because they were looking to do something about 1941 uh, with Universal um, Home Video on Laserdisc. And um, I don't know how they knew this, but they knew I was passionate not only about Steven, but about that particular movie. And and that was like, what, 18 years ago, maybe? And uh, uh, that started my career, basically. So 1941, yeah. sorry, that was the first one you did, the first um, DVD special, <coughs> Laserdisc special feature? Well, I mean, you know, I did, I recorded audio commentaries for several Criterion movies. Oh, that's right, I'm sorry. Uh, and, and, and But the first documentary I actually did for Laserdisc, for Home Entertainment, was uh, 1941, yeah. Cool. Even though it came out after Jaws, which I did subsequently to 1941, um, uh, it was done the other way around. So, so you had said that Brian De Palma was more or less, I mean, he was, I guess he was a sort of starting point for you in that you wrote the book about him and that sort of got you on that, criteria, on that Criterion Laserdisc commentary, which is a commentary oh. I, I've talked to you about and that I like a lot, by the way. Um, oh, thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs> um, but so now, what was it about Brian De Palma? Like, what what was the film that you saw of his that, like, made you truly a fan of his? You know, when I was living, uh, I, I was living in France, and I saw Obsession. And that was the first Brian De Palma movie I ever saw. And I remember, you know, everything about the circumstances under which I saw it, which is meaningless to your uh, to people listening to this interview, but emotionally, when you remember all the circumstances surrounding, um, you, you know, the, an experience that you consider an artistic discovery, you know, it, it just takes on another meaning, you know, and and it was, it, you know, it was just an amazing. I, I can literally put myself back to that to that evening that I went to see it. And um, and so, you know, that movie, like, really uh, uh, had a huge impact on me, you know. And it was uh, not only, uh, you know, the story with the twist and and uh, the, the performances and then the camera work. It was the, the whole ambiance of seeing it, you know. I just remember I felt I had just been to an event. You know, uh, something that that had clicked something in my head, um, and I was the one. I took my entire family to see it. It was mainly because I thought the title was cool. I knew nothing about the film when we went to see it. Oh, wow. you, you know, uh, because in France, you know, you have to understand, like it's very different from America. We, we I didn't grow up on television. We had nothing on TV. Um, you, you know, I don't want to age myself, but I remember being a kid, you know, TV would start at noon and would end at 8, you know, and there was one channel and, you, you, you know, uh, so I didn't grow up on television. So really going to the movies was a huge thing, you know, that that, that was, you know, um, that was the only way to really get any form of entertainment, really, unless you went to the theater or concerts or whatever. But that was cool to me. I mean, I, I'm, I have no, you know, I have no regrets about that. Uh, you, you know, and I have no, I, I, it's not like I'm the kind of person who wishes I had grown up in the age of DVDs because I just feel like it was very special to be able to see those films on the big screen, you know? Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, and, um, uh, 
So obsession was a, was a big benchmark for me. But I, then I didn't see really um, any of his other films uh, until 1981 when I went to Montreal. Uh, part of my family lived there, and I was studying English at McGill University over there and um, came out dressed to kill. And I went to see it with uh, uh, a friend of mine who was a student at the university. And let me put it this way. He said to me, coming out of the theater, he said it was more interesting to see me react to the movie than to actually watch the film. (laughs) (laughs) I was that. I, I had never seen anything like this. Again, you know, I went to see it because of the title, and I love the poster, which I still have. Um, and I, I, I just didn't know what to expect. And I think that it's very rare that uh, you, you, you go and see a movie that you know nothing about, especially today, you know. And that's another thing that's gone. It's like, you know, you go see something and it's been marketed to death and, and, and there are no surprises. You, you know, again, you, you know, and I hate to constantly harken back to my European background, but it's like, you know, in, in Europe, uh, and that's one thing that I, that I miss about Europe, nothing else I miss, but there are a few <laughs> things I do miss, um, is that because things, and especially when I was growing up, you know, Things weren't marketed. You, you you would go see something because you were curious, because you were like, you know what? I should go see this German movie. It sounds interesting. I should go see this this Italian movie because it sounds interesting. You, know, you would go see things because it sounded interesting, you know? Not because you had read the reviews and not because, uh, you know, everybody was hyping it. And, you, you know, it was very... You know, people were very curious, you know. I literally would see everything that came out, whether it was an Italian movie, an American movie, French movie, you know, German. And and I'm just so blessed that I had that, you you know, because I think that as as a filmmaker, you know, you need to really know um, what's you know, what constitutes actually the history of it, you I know? Totally I totally agree And, and, and um, it, it's, again, something that's completely lost, and despite the fact that all those movies are now available on DVD, I don't think that people gravitate toward them, you know, because it's, if you don't know about them, you know, how are you going to even want to watch them, you know? But getting back to Dress to Kill, and I'm sorry, I keep that great. No, no, it's all good. You're going to have some editorial to do, but um, uh, Dress to Kill, the thing that was amazing about it is that it starts with this amazing, you know, credit sequence with this gorgeous, gorgeous score. And I'm a huge fan of film score, like you are. I I, I know you are. And uh, I, I just couldn't believe that you could have such incredible, like, lush music, you know. It was so engaging and, 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 and it was so powerful because I think it set the tone of the movie right there. You know, like you, it was a very sensual score, you know, by Pino Donaggio. So I'm like, wow, this is interesting, you know. So we, we, we go in and then the shot starts in the bedroom and, and it's all, you know, very well lit, you know, it's very, um, 
warm and very sort of like, you know, ethereal almost as the camera moves to the bathroom. And I'm like, oh, my God. And then suddenly you see, like, <laughs> this woman in the car. And I'm like, within five minutes of this movie starting, you've had all kinds of... of um, Emotions, you've had sensuality, you've had sexuality, you've had, you know, close to what would be considered by them pornography, yeah. you know, and you've had violence because she gets raped in the shower, and you've had mystery, and you've had all this stuff within five minutes. And I'm like, okay, if the movie stops right now, it's like I've, I've experienced all kinds of genres <laughs> just right there, you know? And. And it just kept building on that. And, of course, the museum sequence, you know, in the movie, for those who haven't seen the movie, there, there, there's, you know, the scene where, where Angie Dickinson is trying to pick up this man. Uh, we're trying to pick her up, and they had the, the, this game of cannon mouse throughout the museum, which actually is not New York. It's Philadelphia. That's right. Because it, it, the exterior is uh, the Metropolitan Museum, but the interior was shot in Philadelphia. And... Um, and it's it's a masterpiece. And in the original script, and I don't know if he ever intended to do it that way. You had um, her her thoughts, you know, like voiceover. And and then during editorial, I guess, you know, I never asked him that question. Actually, um, he decided to just have music, and it's literally a ballet. It's it's. It's beyond amazing. And I remember talking to Angie Dickinson actually about that sequence, which was very uncomfortable to shoot because you had to stay focused on her and she's constantly moving. And so she had to hold a piece of tape uh, that was attached to the camera. And so if you don't see her hand, she's actually holding a rope because she could not go any faster or any slower in a very certain space, that uh -huh. pace, so that um, they would always be in focus on her, or else they would lose focus. She would blur, you know. So I have a picture, I think, of her holding that rope. Oh, um, so it's it's really interesting. Yeah, no, that's really cool. No, it is. It is a just and, and also also the the um, the thing that was really interesting was. When you thought the movie was finished, you know, there was the nightmare at the end, you know, and that scared me to death. When Michael Caine strangles that nurse, you know, uh, I jumped so high, I, <laughs> I, I nearly fell off my chair. I mean, it was literally falling off your chair, you know, one of those feelings where, where you, Oh, so and I remember coming out of the theater saying something like, I could never see this movie again because I could never feel that sort of discovery again. You know, like I had literally gone in. I don't know how I can express it because, you, you know, it's such a personal thing, you know, and, and somebody could go see this movie and think, what is he talking about, you know? It, it's like... It's uh, um, it's a feeling of discovery that that cinema is art, 
it's a, it was a discovery like this is really confirms what I want to do. This is everything about the film I want to know how it was created because I think it's just so interesting, you know. And it wasn't about the fact that the movie was violent and that, you know, people have criticized the movie for being misogynistic and for being, you know, a ripoff of Psycho and, and all that stuff. And, you know, I, I, I really, I never saw it that way. I really saw it as this genuine, uh, um, uh, piece of art, you know, and of course I saw the movie. I I think I've seen the movie. I stopped counting when I was number sixty, you know. I, I mean, I I've seen it probably close to two hundred times. Oh I know it by heart. I know when sound effects are starting, when you hear a dog barking in the back or whatever. I could recite the whole movie from frame one, literally, and. Not that it means anything, but I think in my sort of growth as a, uh, in, in the sort of growing as a person who likes film, you know, it was a benchmark. It was something that really, uh, and to this day, I still think it's it's one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, I know that I'm probably in the minority to think that because, you know, there's been so many masterpieces before that in the same genre including Psycho, but in terms of what it meant to me as a person, you know, at the time, uh, it was, uh, it, it was beyond, you know, I never, I don't think I ever felt like this ever again, you know, uh, even seeing other films by Brian or other filmmakers that I love, you know, I never felt like this again, you know, and it was pretty, it was almost like, you, you, you know, a, a really defining moment, you know. Yeah. So now, you know, that's I love the film. I think it. I would probably agree with you. I think it is uh, a masterpiece. I think it is um, to 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 reduce it to to criticize it about the misogyny and the psycho ripoff and whatnot. I think is it's ridiculous because he's Brian's taken it so much further than that. Brian De Palma has done so much more than. Anyway, he's really put his stamp on it, as you know, and everything. But but I was going to say, um, it, we did now. Did De Palma introduce you to Hitchcock, or was it the other way around? How did that? How did Hitchcock come into this? First Hitchcock film I ever saw was Family Plot, oh, and I saw it in the theaters in France, and I loved it. And it's one of my favorites today. But I remember that back then, my reaction was, oh. This is the Hitchcock everybody talks about. I thought he made the scary movies. And I was taken aback at the time by the fact that it was not what I had expected. Even though I liked the movie, um, I did not love it, you know. But today, you know, it's one of my favorites because I, I know better. But back then, you know, not having seen his body of work, you know, I, I, it, it was not what I expected, you know, and it's definitely not necessarily in the vein of, of I mean, it does have the Hitchcock, you know, um, it does have the Hitchcock spirit to it, but it's not, you know, as grand and as scary as Psycho and all that stuff, which was the, the sort of things I, I, I had in mind, even though I had not seen Psycho at that point, you know. <laughs> so uh, that was my first introduction to, to Hitchcock, 
and 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 I'm thrilled it was in the th- it, I'm thrilled it was in the theater and it was you know when the movie came out uh, in France and and it, it was a great experience and and so but I didn't pursue him because I had the sort of like huh okay it's fine you know and and I'd rather go see Jaws and Earthquake and whatever else <laughs> you know, was coming up <laughs> but you know Hitchcock you know I really discovered. Uh, when, uh, sadly enough, when he died, because again, you know, there were no, uh, movies were being shown on television of, of, of any sort, you know, um, and so I never really saw his films, you know, I, I knew who he was and I, I had, you know, books of, on, on him and stuff, you know, I, I think I had the, Probably had the truthful Hitchcock books, you know, and and I must have seen something, you know, maybe some early film. But um, when he passed away, uh, uh, he uh, when he passed away, I was living in France, and I remember they showed on TV the um, American Film Institute tribute to Hitchcock in France on TV as part of a a tribute to him because he had passed away and he was such an icon and, 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 you know, the French were the first one to really recognize him as a, as an artist, you know, as calling him a, um, you, you, you know, actually an artist. Uh, and I was so moved by that, uh, uh, tribute, you know, there was Ingrid Bergman giving him the key from Notorious and you had, Tony Perkins, and, and you had all those kids from all those movies that I actually didn't know. You know, like Strangers on the Train, I remember, was one I was, like, mesmerized by the uh, carousel sequence at the end. And within that month period of, of which he died, uh, they re-released all of his movies, except for the few that, you know, Universal was holding back or that the estate was holding back. And, and those were released, you know, maybe 10 years later, you know, Rear Window and Vertigo. Um, and um, I remember going to all the little French movie theaters that were reviving everything from his silent films to family plot, you know. Um, and uh, it, was, it, it was incredible. You know, I saw everything. I would start at 1 o'clock in the afternoon and come out at midnight, and I would see one after one after another. And from that day on, I, I bought everything on Hitchcock. I mean, I mean, I may have one of the largest collection of photos and posters and books, you know. Uh, again, because we had, you know, I had access to French material and 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 different countries, you know, uh, not just. Uh, American uh, movie posters or stills or whatever, you know, and and that was that was great. And of course, you know, when I got to do the Hitchcock collection for Universal and Warner's, I, I was um, in heaven. And then when I got to do several books on him, including the new one uh, I that I did, uh, Hitchcock piece by piece, you know, I feel like that's it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've come full circle several times around on Hitchcock. I think I've said everything and explored everything I could uh, on the man. Can you want to talk about it piece by piece? This is your book that just recently came out. Um, well, you know, it was interesting. Um, 
And I think you're the only person I'm going to tell the full story. Okay. The full story is this, is that one day I received via FedEx this big package. It's a book on Jimi Hendrix and a book on Celine Dion, French. And it's, those books are very interesting. They're like kind of book objects where you, you open them and there's a CD or there's a, uh, um, you know, postcards or things that relate to the subject, you know, that you can actually hold in your hands. And I'm like, who is this person who is sending me this, you know? And there was a letter with it in French uh, from this. Uh, it's actually not, it was, it was actually uh, some kind of a publisher, but they were more like book packagers. <laughs> so when they wanted to do a subject, they come to you and, and, and they would say, okay, let's write the book. And they would actually pay you to write the book and everything. And then they sell it to different publishers. And they approached me to do the Hitchcock book. And basically what they did is look for me and found my address, um, through my, my previous publishers and, and, and contacted me that way. So I put them in touch with my agent and, and, and also with the, uh, and through my agent, they got in touch with the Hitchcock estate. <clears throat> they got in touch with the Hitchcock estate and, and I was very close to them because of all the projects I had done with them. And frankly, I didn't want to do another book I, uh, on, and on Hitchcock. I felt like, look, I have so many books on Hitchcock. I've done two of them. I've done all the DVDs. I, I can come up with a, a new fresh angle on this. You, you, you know, I, I, I just, I, I just can't do another biography on him. I know that I had done one really. I had done kind of a family history through Hitchcock's wife with Pat Hitchcock, but I, I just felt like that subject had been explored to death, and and I certainly did not necessarily, you, you know, um, another type of person who would want to write a book like The Dark Side of Genius and things like that. So even though, again, you know, fascinating uh, writing um, stuff there. But uh, so I kind of said no, and then they insisted, and I met them in Paris. I was in Paris for a shoot, and I went to see those people, and, and they were very nice, and I said, you know, look, here's the only way I could do this, you know. And I told them the story about Hitchcock passing away and me seeing all those movies in a row and realizing really what was incredible when I went to see all those movies um, when Hitchcock passed away and that I saw them all within a month's period is that I realized that they were all connected, that it was impossible to think of Hitchcock as, as one film, you had to consider the entire oeuvre. Uh, does it sound familiar, that, that word, oeuvre, yeah, in English? Do you know what that means? Yeah, just his whole body of work, right? His whole body of work, you know. Um, you had to consider the whole body of work. Because even if you saw a movie like Tom Curtin, which is not interesting, it's fascinating if you put it in the context of his body of work, you know. And then you realize you know, all the themes, you know, the wrong man and the blondes and the villains and, and not only that, but his technical language, you know, his cinematic language. I hate the word technical, so his cinematic language was always at the service of the story, yeah. you know. So it was, it, it, I said, you know, I can write it 
with that in mind. And it's sort of a book for people who maybe know who Hitchcock is, you know, but who don't really know a lot and would be like me when I was like a, a, a kid, you know, suddenly, oh my God, this is so interesting, seeing the American Film Institute tribute to him on TV, but, they're, but now they're reading my book and going like, wow, this is really interesting stuff. I would love to see more films of him. So I would love to see more films by him. So it, it's sort of like uh, uh, um, solidified some kind of vision for it and something that was doable because I also had like eight to ten weeks to really write it because the book was so complicated and was um, they were planning to sell it to different countries in different languages. So there was not only the, the, the production of it, of all those, memorabilia and licensing of, of images, but there was also the translation, you know, yeah. of the text in different languages. And indeed, you know, it ended up coming out the same day in French, German, Spanish, England, and America, you know, so that um, quite a few different publishers, you know, working together at making this book an event, you know. So... So that's how it came together. And frankly, you know, writing it was difficult because I had such, um, because I had so little time to do it. But I, um, uh, once I sat down and got into it, it was fun because it was really connecting all the films together, connecting the dots, and, and it came together. You know, it always does in the end, as we know, you know. Uh, if if you put your heart into it, um, it comes together. That's cool. so you would say you would say it's a good introduction, maybe to someone that isn't like you were saying as familiar with Hitchcock. It'd be a good, you know. Yeah, I definitely think that this is not the book you know to read if you're interested in Hitchcock Five. I think it's a really good introduction to Hitchcock's world, you know, and one. Uh, you know, and, and a world discovered from, from the point of view of an audience member, not, I don't come from an historian, you know, um, kind of uh, uh, point of view. You know, I come from somebody who's watched his movies. And someone also, you know, who's interviewed pretty much everyone who was still around when I started doing documentaries about him, you know. So, you know, I was able to use some of that research and some of those quotes that I had gathered through the years to make certain points, you know, and to make it a little more lively. But truly, it, it is an introduction to Hitchcock, I feel. Cool, cool. And can you talk about, real briefly, the, the pullouts? There's all kinds of interesting pullouts in the book that I think people would like to know about. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing that's interesting with the book is that it was always going to be a book object, and, and, and you were going to be able to sort of pull out, you know, a series of documents, photos, letters, postcards, um, costume sketches as you read the book or after you've read the book or before. <laughs> and uh, and the idea was always to sort of create somehow, the idea was always to create something very tactile. And I tell you, in an age where books are slowly disappearing, you know, for the benefit of, books you can get directly on a device, you know, it, it, it was really uh, a tribute to the publishers 
those publishers I mentioned from different countries, you know, to really embrace this because it's an expensive book to produce. Um, and um, to, to have all those pieces, you know, to have all those pieces reproduced and then put together in this volume was, I mean, I can't even tell you how complicated that is. Um, it's really pretty fascinating. So I, I think it's, it's kind of uh, Pat Hitchcock in his, uh, Pat Hitchcock in her introduction uh, relates to it as a little piece of a Hitchcock museum. And I, and I really think that that's what we try to do. You know, if you went to a little museum of, of Hitchcock, you know, you'd get some of those photos and some of those pictures. That's cool. It's a beautiful yeah. book. I highly recommend people check it out. Um, so I know you're a big film score fan. Um, yeah. I was talking about that earlier. Um, who, who are who are? Well, I mean, I guess what started you loving film music, and then who were some of your favorite composers? Well, I'll tell you. I will tell you, Brian. I clearly remember the day I discovered film scores. So I love your questions, by the way, because. Thank you. They kind of forced me to remember certain things. I was in high school, and there was a cine club. You know, they would show certain movies. In fact, I went to a really strict, you know, boarding Catholic school, and you'd be shocked by the movies they were showing us, like Deliverance, for example. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is crazy. They would show us a lot of movies by Vajda, who is a Polish director, we made absolutely shockingly violent and sexually explicit movies. Anyways, one day they decided to show us something a little more, you know, mainstream, and that was Francois Truffaut's film of Fahrenheit 451. Ah. And I can't remember how old I was, but maybe 14 years old, I heard that score by Bernard Herrmann, and from that day on, I understood the power of film music. And I was more enthralled and fascinated by hearing the film than by seeing it, really, at that point. When I heard that they first, you know, uh, cue, which is the, the March of the Fireman, uh, uh, it, it just elevated the movie to 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 another sphere, you know. And I'm like, who is this guy? So of course, you know, then you just at the time, you know, you couldn't really buy any of that stuff. It didn't exist, you know, it was it was very hard to find. But I slowly, you know, or rather quickly I would say, <laughs> you know, become obsessed with film music and really paid attention to music. And um and then there was this record store on the Champs Elysees that uh, I became really good friend with with uh, the, the the guy who was my age, but and and but worked part time in the record store. And there was a whole soundtrack sex, section. There's a whole soundtrack section, and and I remember you know starting to buy soundtracks. And and uh, when I was you know in my teens, I was sent as a sort of an exchange, you know to Athens, Georgia. That's another story. But the one thing I brought back with me, and I remember I was staying with this family in Athens, Georgia, and they're like, well, get yourself a little, you know, get yourself a little souvenir from your trip. And I go to a record store and I buy the soundtrack to Earthquake. Nice. 
And they were like, what is wrong with this kid? <laughs> and anyways, so, you, you know, Herman is probably, I mean, actually, Herman is the one who introduced me to film scores, you know. But, you know, quickly I discovered, you know, each time I would see a movie, like when I remember seeing The Towering Inferno and 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 the soundtrack by John Williams, you know, blew me away. And I remember seeing, uh, you know, the James Bond films and John Barry's music blew me away. So, so it was like one discovery after another, you know. And the thing that's been really great for me in terms of soundtracks, you know, is that they were... You know, I've always loved the, the very symphonic, you know, classic soundtracks. So you name it, everything from Miklos Rosa to, to Herman to John Williams and, 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 you know, even John Barry. And, um, I, I mean, I really love all of them. But, you, you know, there's certain composers that I discovered later in life only because I was, um, there was a point in my life where I hated everything European. And, or everything that was not like, you know, relating to uh, an American type film. So I would even put James Bond in that, in, 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 in that group because to me James Bond was not British. It was more like a, 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 an American kind of sensibility of movies, you know, even though it's not at all, but that was the way it was in my brain, you know? Absolutely. And so I would, I, you know, anything that was not English language, you know, I, I had a complete you know, uh, reaction against. So um, I did not like Georges de la Rue, for example. And and then recently, within the past 10 years, you know, I've become more open-minded as I'm getting older, you know. <laughs> you start looking back. And I started listening to some of his soundtracks, and I'm like, oh, my God, this man is amazing. And I started collecting him like crazy. And, uh, and now he's right up there with all those guys that I've worshipped you know, way before I worshipped him. And the thing that's really sad is that I, I met him. I went to a recording of uh, a friend of mine did a movie in France, and um, Delore did the score, and I went to the recording of that. And to think that I never, that, you know, he died very young, and, and to think that I never got to to appreciate that moment, actually, uh, as I would now, you know, it's pretty sad, but you know that's where I was then. You know. Yeah. No, I totally understand. Now, what, what, if for those that aren't as familiar with his work, what are a couple of your favorites from him? I would say that uh, my favorite of Georges de la Rue would be actually, curiously, uh, some of the uh, more American movies. Um, he did a score for a movie called A Normal perfect uh affair and and uh it's absolutely uh it's magical he's in a movie called a, a show of force with amy irving that is really great um all of his work for francois truffaut is is absolutely absolutely amazing crimes of the heart which is a movie with uh uh, Jessica Lang, Diane Keaton, and C.C. Spacek is beautiful. So all those books are very, um, I mean, he had a big career in America, so they're very uh, accessible, you know, to, uh, to, your, uh, to your fans. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's really cool. He's, I think, definitely underappreciated and not talked about in film score circles. Um, 
Yeah. But one of my favorite scores of his is uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes, which actually was rejected and is now available on CD. And um, it's really pretty amazing. That's got to be kind of weird to hear those those rejected film scores, you know, when you've already got a movie, you've seen it with the music that it finished with, but then you've got this other possibility that could have happened, which would totally change the movie. There's no way anyone can deny that having a completely different score on any film would change it in a big way, you know. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, the thing that happened, actually, when I was doing the Torn Curtain documentary, I had access to, uh, for those who don't know, you know, Basically, Bernard Herman wrote a score and recorded some of it, and then Hitchcock, you know, at the time was going through extreme pressures from the studio, and his movies were no longer commercial, and and he hated the score, even though it's one of his best scores, very similar to a North by Northwest kind of uh, score, and and um, so he was fired, and that ended um, Hitchcock's relationship with Herman, and also I I believe you know. Um, uh, that Herman, you know, never quite uh, recovered from from that blow, you know. Uh, but you know, that's what happens. And and uh, I was able to show in my documentary on Tom Curtin uh, what a scene was like with the score of Herman and with the score of John Addison, who replaced him. And I'm telling you, that's when you start understanding the genius versus the <laughs> not-so-genius. Yeah. Even though John Addison was a great composer, but not for that movie. Yeah, no, I think any any movie that Herman had any hand in at all is much the better for it. And he's really been a part of so many uh, classic, I mean, you know, uh, it's, he's amazing. He's an amazing guy. Well, I mean, he, you know, I, I, I remember, you know, I had seen Stand Out 451, and of course, when I saw the movie Obsession by Brian De Palma, immediately, I think one of the reasons why I connected, you know, the movie with, uh, it, the reason why I connected with the movie was because the score was by Bernard Herrmann, you know, and I remember buying the album of, of Obsession, you know, and, and just, uh, Reliving the movie thanks to the music because again in those days we didn't have so once once the movie came out that was it you know luckily in France there are a lot of um, cinematics and small theaters that constantly replay you know old movies or older titles and so there was always a chance that obsession would play again at a the Palma Festival or whatever you know the Palma Week or whatever you want to call it and. And, uh, uh, but other than that, you couldn't see the movie again. So the only way to really relive the movie, uh, was through the soundtrack, you know? So, so that was really important to me, you know? And, and a movie like Earthquake, for example, on the soundtrack, they had designed the, the sense around sound effects were present on the soundtrack. So you had a couple of, of, of sound design thing on, on, on the, uh, soundtrack. And it was great because it allowed you, you know, to sort of relive the, the movie to some degree. That even happened on Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, which is, again, you know, video has started really, but, you know, they released, a, uh, they released an album that was a condensed story version with the sound effects and the dialogue and, and the whole movie. And I would listen to that nonstop. You, you know, I mean, it's inconceivable that you would do this today. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, you buy the, the DVD, but like back then, again, before all of this existed, you know, you would buy, you know, um, albums that were like story albums almost, you know? Yeah, I remember, I remember stuff like that, yeah. That's so interesting you say about the, um, the sense around effects being on the earthquake. I, I'm fascinated by sense around. I think it's one of the coolest gimmicks that was ever used, and uh, I was lucky enough to see Earthquake and Sense Around at a revival screening at UCLA several years ago, and it was an approximation, because obviously it wasn't the actual real big speakers against the wall or whatever they did, but I think that's such a, such a cool process, and the fact that they incorporated it into the soundtrack even is really neat. Well, I mean, you know, <clears throat> and this was um, really thinking be- before the time, you know, uh, and uh, about a year ago, I think, I was able to recreate the real experience at the Egyptian of Earthquake with the real speakers and all that stuff, and I brought in Geneviève Bujold. And when the sense-around happened, the, the whole sense-around sequence, it was amazing. And at the end of it, people clapped so loud that I could feel air going through my head, you know. I was like, people were crazy, and the theater was packed. And even, you know, I introduced the movie because I had organized with a friend of mine a screening, and I knew Genevieve, so I brought her to the, to the stage, whatever. And you would think that I had directed the movie because at the end of the film, people came up to me to congratulate me <laughs> on the movie. I said, well, what about nothing to do with the movie? And, and there was this young guy, actually, he must have been like, I don't know, like, you know, 15, 16, and he said, you know, I, this is the best time I've had at the movies. And I was like, wow, you know, this is great because... You know, it just shows that even though the movie is dated and even though, you, you know, it never was a masterpiece, you know, it still is great entertainment. It's all about characters. It builds up. It takes its time to tell the story. And, and, and it, was, it was really incredible because the, the audience that came was not necessarily people my age and just guys. It was everything. It was, it was like... You know, young people, older people, and there was a line around the block. It was crazy. Oh, I, I mean, you would have thought you had a concert of, you know, whatever. You know, it, it was it was it was really fun. I, I wish I could have gone to that one because I got to say the the one at UCLA um, was and I totally echo what that you know fifteen sixteen year old kid said. One of the best times I've had at a movie theater because I, I mean I love gimmicks I love 3D and the old style 3D that stuff really gets me into the theater when we, when the Egyptian has their festival and whatnot. but Sense Around and, and the kind of raucous almost comedy that Earthquake can be is such a communal experience it's such a great I just I could I totally know what that kid is saying and I wish I had seen your screening too because I would go do it again I would drag anybody I could to go to see Earthquake and Sense Around with a group is one of the best things ever. I just was so blown away. And you know, the thing that was, um, actually, uh, the thing I was nervous about is that, you know, particularly because I had brought one of the stars from the film, you know, um, and she was going to sit through it. I, I was nervous that people were going to laugh and laugh and laugh, you know, because, you know, I'm able to go back to the time when that movie came out because that was 
a teenager, you know, and I remember the effect it had on me. So I, I, I don't laugh at the movie, mm-hmm. you, you, you know. I, I mean, I know it's stated and stuff, but I don't because I'm able to relate to it because I remember that when I first saw it, I wasn't laughing. You know, no one was. Yeah. And, and I was afraid people were going to laugh, but aside from a couple of things that are, you know, obvious, you, you, you know, like particularly involving Eva Gardner. Yes. Um, and, and, and her father, Lauren Green, whereas in life she was older than he was. So um, apart from that, you know, I, I think the movie is pretty, is it, pretty great. And, and, and then we screened the towering inferno. And that to me is really ageless. It's, a, it's the best of that genre. I think better than Poseidon Adventure. Oh, I totally agree. He, and especially because of 9-11, and I don't mean to to make an inappropriate, you know, uh, uh, panel here, but no, I tell you, you, you know, when you think about 9-11, you, you know, uh, it's very real. You know, when you watch that movie now, you can't help but think about it. You know, it's impossible. In fact, you know, I used to have the poster in my in my uh, office of the Tower Inferno, and I took it down on 9-11 because yeah. I couldn't look at it. You yeah. know, I was like, I can never watch that movie now and not thinking of all those people who died because suddenly it was no longer entertainment and it was real, you know? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a fantastic film. I, I really, really, it's probably, if I had to pick a favorite, and, and one of my later questions was, what is your favorite disaster film? But I'm, I'm assuming uh, Towering Inferno is probably it. Yeah, I, I think... I mean, I remember telling Inferno, when I went to see it, my parents didn't want me to go see it. They said, there's no way you're going to see this movie. I was very impressionable as a kid because, again, you know, we never were exposed to anything. I grew up in the little suburb of Paris. We were never exposed to anything. You know, it was, I mean, I, I can imagine what, you know, I'm sure you have the equivalent in America, like Middle America, whatever, you know, like where, you know, everybody knows each other. And you know, even the the word divorce was never mentioned. You, you, you know, and it's not that it was you know repressed or anything. It just was a culture. You know, it's the sixties, the seventies. You know, yeah. and so when the Tang Inferno came to my town, you know, um, my parents said, "You're not going to go see this because it's it's for adults. It's very shocking, Bola." And I begged and begged and begged, and finally they gave up, and they said, okay, you can go see it, but if you're scared, you can't, you know, complain. And I was terrified. <laughs> but at the same time, I really, I remember appreciating the cinematic values of it. I was like, I just could not believe they had realized that, you know. And that's the thing that is amazing about the film, that they actually did it all on the set. Yeah. With the actors, you know, and I knew Eddie Flowers, and that's A, capital A, D, Flowers, he did 1941, that was the last movie he did, and he talked to me about the Tang Inferno, and and he did Poseidon as well, he did all the special effects on set, and he said, you could never do this today, ever, it, it would be too dangerous, you know, and so you look at that, and you actually see people really being scared. It's really well made, really well made. And the story is very dramatic. Um, there are a few corny moments, but I tell you, you put Paul Newman and Steve McQueen, William Holden, Faith Dunaway, 
You know, I mean, you can't go wrong. I mean, all those people were incredible actors, you know? Yeah, it's an all-star game. It's amazing. Um, I was just going to say, like, I love the, the disaster film, the sort of genre conventions of it. You've got, obviously, a big cast is one of the things. So you set up and you introduce briefly your cast, and then you set up the peril, whatever it happens to be, you know, a ship sinking, a building burning, or animals attacking. And there's something so comforting about those genre conventions that even though you've seen them a bunch of times before and maybe there's been a lot of cheap knockoffs, I still can sit down and settle into those conventions and I, there's something about those films. Towering Inferno being the best example, obviously. Yeah. It's just great stuff. Um, I was going to say, uh, we sort of covered it, but you know, one of my questions is about your earliest film memories and I don't know if you have stuff earlier than what we've been talking about, if there's something that struck you when you were younger that really got you into movies or if we've really already covered it? Well, actually, you know, the, the, when I read that question, I was trying to remember, <clears throat> I was trying to remember if I knew, uh, you, you know, the first movie I ever saw, and I don't, actually. I but the thing that I remember is the first time I went to the movies, and it was in my small town, you know, again, outside Paris, about half hour away from Paris, but it always felt like there was Paris, a zillion miles away, and my small town, you know. In fact, it was, <laughs> you know, very close. Um, but we had this small movie theater, and I remember going to it, you know, as a really young child, and never looking at the screen, always looking back up at the projection holes, you know, like you had... There's two, you had four holes, you know, yeah. and you had two in the center, which were the projectors, you know, and two for the projectionist to see when you were going to have a real changeover. And that's what I remember the most. It's like, who is doing, I mean, it's the classic Wizard of Oz curtain thing, you know? <laughs> who is doing this? Who is creating this magic on the screen? And I remember then asking my mom to make me a piece of white sheet that I would put behind my curtain in my bedroom and keep on opening it and closing it. I thought it was like the greatest power to have was to open a curtain, <laughs> you, you know, and to reveal a white screen and suddenly animate something on it. I thought there was so... I was like, this is amazing. And, you know, like in, in the small town, they had some kind of a thing that would come down, like kind of a... Uh, a big poster of all the local stores, you know, and then the curtain would close on it, and you know that somebody would switch on the switch, and that would go up, and then there would be a white screen. And like, who is doing this? Who is switching on the lights? Who is beaming down the lights? And so I told my dad, I said, I want to go up there. So my dad, you know, told, it was like a family-owned business, and the husband was a projectionist, and the mother was the you know, uh, working at the cash register, and, this was, and there was this voluptuous blonde, you know, who was the usherette, you know, in the theater, and she would come down the aisle with a little basket of, of, of things, and, and all the seats were numbered, and people are going to think I'm like 80 years old, but I'm not. <laughs> but um, uh, basically, uh, my dad said to the wife said, you know, my son is a kid, he wants to go up to the to the projection booth. And she said, yeah, well, the time to stick around after the movie's finished. So my dad left me by myself 
which you would never do today, obviously, but back then you could. And he said, you know, talk to her, whatever. And I was very shy. I mean, really shy. And so I'm basically standing there. Everybody's gone. They've totally forgotten that they're supposed to show me the projection booth. They're cleaning the theater. And um, the woman, you know, I can't remember clearly, but somebody at some point must have said, oh, say, yeah, 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 go, go upstairs. He's still in there. And I opened this door, and I swear, you know, like it's like, if you picture vertigo, it's like this really long, long staircase, which was probably three steps, but I felt it was, and I'm going up, and there are film cans everywhere, and I'm just like so petrified. And suddenly I enter the projection booth, which was so tiny, you know, half the size of your office or something, you know, totally tiny, with overheated. He was, and it was so dirty. It was, the walls were like, it was like a cave, basically. (laughs) And I was like, oh, that's it. And he explained to me how it worked, you know. He showed me the, the, the sort of, arc light, you know, that was inside the projector, and he, I remember he scared me because he said, if you look at it, you'd become blind, you know, so don't look at it, <laughs> and so there was, like, fear, and, and I was, like, kind of really mesmerized, but scared also, you know, it was, it was really uh, a, a, a strange experience, and, and it's a great symbol, for, for me, again, all of those are only of value to me, you know, but... It's sort of like what I discovered later on, you know, when I started working in the business, you know. There's the, 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 the hopefully the, the product that you see of the work I do, and there's, you know, the 95% of, of, <laughs> of deglamorizing, you know, um, the whole process because it's all politics and it's all, you, you, you know, very, very hard work, you know. Yeah. And it's not, you know, what you see on the screen and it's, is just the labor of what it takes to get it there, you know. And that, I'm sure, is true for all the filmmakers I work with, you know, is that basically, you know, it, it, the, 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 the glamour of it is the ultimate payoff, if you're interested in that, you know. But um, it really is the process, and the process can be ugly and like a dark cave, you know. But if you have at the end of the, at the, end of the day, you can look at the screen and see something beautiful, then it's all worth it, you know? Absolutely. No, that's a really, really good way to put it. I like that. Um, do you have, uh, can you talk about a few films that you want to see on DVD that haven't been put out yet? Well, I mean, there's, um, there are two films, actually, that I wish, uh, you know, are on DVD, but they're crappy DVDs, so that, does that count? I, I'd like to know what those are. I definitely- Gold? With Roger Moore. Oh, that's out on DVD. I didn't even know that. Well, it, it's out, but it's like in pan scan, and it's—I mean, it was literally—I mean, they must have taken an old VHS and done a DVD, and it's really sad. And um, uh, a Charles Bronson movie called Cabo Blanco, you know, which is like Casablanca, <laughs> and and it's a great movie which I saw in the theaters, and I think it may have existed on DVD at some point. But uh, it's no longer available, and and um, I don't have it. So I would love for those two films to come out as as uh, as real films. There's also Shad at the Devil with Roger Moore, that is uh, an incredible film. Um, 
And just like gold, actually, it's based on novels by Wilbur Smith, who is my number one almost favorite writer of all time. Actually, Stephen King is, but uh, Wilbur Smith uh, is right up there, and I collect him um, avidly. But uh, it's adventure stories and, and they're amazing films, really well made, you know, by Peter Hunt, you know, who was the director of Honor Majesty's Secret Service and a great editor and... And it's just uh, really great cinema. Yeah, no, I love Under Magic's Secret Service, by the way. That's a great... Yeah, that's a great movie. Um, and, and along the lines of this same topic is other, like, Holy Grail-type movies that you haven't seen yet that you want to see? You know, maybe rare stuff? Well, I mean, one thing that I always... that I try to do when I knew Peter Benchley, the author of Jaws, um, he had told me that there was a longer version of The Deep that had been done for television where, you know, they used to extend films, you know, and, and, and film additional material. And um, I believe that in the case of The Deep, it was actually shot for the movie. Um, and it was a whole prologue of, of uh, you, you know, the, the wreck of this ship that carried drugs. I mean, um, you, you know, morphine, basically. And... Um, uh, during a storm, you know, the the ship gets caught in the storm, and Peter Bensley was in that scene as a cameo appearance. And then, and then in the morning, you see a little kid on the beach, and he sees a crate, you know, because they're, you, you know, part of the wreck just went washed out to shore, and he opens the crate, and there's a head in it. Oh, wow. And I saw that footage. He showed it to me. And it was like on a bad VHS, and I was like, "Oh wow!" And and I tried to get Columbia to find those elements, and I don't think they ever did. I mean, I know they never did because they never put it out. But um, I would say that if that was available, it'd be great to do an extended version of The Deep. It's one of my favorite, you know, films of the '70s, also. So that would be great to see that. And then there's a Roman Polanski movie that I've never seen called What. Oh, with yeah. uh, uh, an actress named Sydney Rome, who was a big star when I was growing up in France, a very sexy woman, very beautiful. But that movie has never been available. Yeah, I've heard of that one. That's one I'd love to see, too. That's cool. Cool. Um, those are both great picks. Um, do you have a favorite Hollywood legend? A favorite Hollywood legend? Um, my favorite story of that was ever told to me was by Richard Zanuck and David Brown when I started doing documentaries about the making of Jaws. And um, they were looking for a director, and they went to a director, and and that was in Stephen. And uh, he kept talking about the whale, even though he had uh, read the book, <laughs> and he knew it was no whale, it was a shark. So clearly... He was not the right guy for the movie, you know. So that's—I—I I, I don't think that's a legend because it's a true story. Um, but uh, that's one of my favorite stories. And another great story that was told to me by Mario Puzo that I don't know if it's true. Mm -hmm. okay? It's okay, but I interviewed Mario Puzo when I did, you know, uh, the Godfather trilogy for Laserdisc uh, documentaries. And and Mario Puzo was an amazing man. I mean, I, I would start crying if I really talked about how amazing that man was and to go into his home and 
how Yak Noe's, <laughs> you know, I mean, amazing man. And so he told me the story that when he wrote the Godfather screenplay, you know, and got an Oscar for it, then he starts getting all those offers, including writing Earthquake and Superman and what have you. So he doesn't truly know how to write a screenplay because he wrote The Godfather with Coppola and, you know, Coppola knew the format and all that stuff. So he said, I have to buy a book about how to write a screenplay because I don't know how to do it. I know how to tell stories. I don't know the format. So he goes to a store and he buys a book, you know, how to write a screenplay. Goes home, opens the book, and the first sentence is, if you want to know how to write a screenplay, read The Godfather. <laughs> That's awesome. So I don't know if it's a true story, because I have yet to find that book, but having Mario Puzo tell you that story is pretty amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. I like that story. That's great. Um, if you could have lunch with any actor or director not living, uh, who would who'd you pick? I would pick Stanley Kubrick. Nice. I would definitely pick Stanley Kubrick. And in fact, you know, the funny thing is, or the sad thing is, is that my when when started having a, a really good you know work relationship with uh, Steven Spielberg, my dream was really to get those two men in a room and film them talking. You know because I did it for Steven and Lou Wasserman. Actually, you know we we did a whole session of of interviews together, and that was amazing. And I thought, oh my God, wouldn't it be great? But you, you know I wanted to approach him at a time that was appropriate and and and. I remember the day that we decided to go to him, uh, that's the week that Kubrick passed away. Oh. And it was just not meant to be. Mm. <laughs> so I have no regrets because I really believe in that, you know, things that are meant to happen, happen, you know, and at least for myself. Uh, so it, it was really interesting that uh, <laughs> it just wasn't meant to be. The second person would be Francois Truffaut who was the French director, for those who may not be familiar with his work, but he was the most amazing French uh, director of the new wave, in my in my view, and a cinephile and critic and wrote the definitive book on Hitchcock, a series of interviews, and, uh, of course, um, uh, you know, did uh, great movies and worked with, worked with um, uh, Steven Spielberg in Close Encounters, you know, and I did meet him uh, right before The Last Metro was going to come out. I was in a movie store that I would go to every weekend, and so his movie was coming out on Wednesday because movies come out on Wednesdays on, in France. Movies come out on Wednesdays in France, and so... I was saying to the owner of the store, oh, true for this, true for that, and Boomy walked into the store. It was amazing. So it was three of us, and I got to talk to him, and the thing that was amazing to me is that he said how scared he was about the last Metro coming out because he said, you know, I'm no longer, uh, you, you know, a box office hit, and I'm really worried about my movie. And he was saying this was a complete stranger, yeah. and and I was really uh, taken aback by by his fear because I'm like, wait a minute, you're Francois Truffaut, you're a big star yeah. and you're scared. But again, another lesson, you know, to learn. And of course, you know, I would love to have uh, lunch or dinner, probably lunch with, with Alfred Hitchcock, you know. Um, 
And it's funny because when you asked me that question, it didn't come up to my mind right away because I've studied him so much that I think that I, I know so much about him, you know, that I almost feel like I know him, <laughs> which I really don't, you know, I'm not even close. But, you know, Kubrick is someone that's still an enigma to me, you know, and Truffaut is very also enigmatic to me. You know, I've not studied them as much as I have studied Hitchcock. So those would be the two first things that would come to mind. Cool. No, that's very cool. Um, <clears throat> do you have a favorite underrated Charles Bronson movie? I would say that I, I, I would say a lot of his movies are underrated. A lot of his movies are underrated. I feel like he's underrated. You know, he's an amazing actor with an amazing range, you know. I, I, I would say that Telephone is an incredible film. Excellent. Each time I tell the story to someone, as recently as a few weeks ago, I was on the set of a movie and there was a, an executive there, and I started telling them the story of Telephone. I said, it's on iTunes now. You, you need to download that movie and look at it. it they, they were blown away. And, and I hope my description of it lives up to the expectation. <laughs> you know, uh, I love Telephone. I love Death Hunt. I think it's oh, a movie yeah. that uh, is totally underrated. Ten to Midnight, um, as you, you know, it's not the greatest film, but I think it's a really, really good uh, psycho-type film. I agree. Uh, Noon Till 3 is a movie that no one really knows about, but I think it shows a completely different side of, of, of Bronson. And lastly, Messenger of Death, I think, is a really good film also wow. that no one talks about. <clears throat> Those are all great. That's really cool. I haven't seen Noon Till 3, and I've been meaning to for some time. Um, I mean, Definitely have to see it. It's a, it's a total different Bronson. It, it, it's a, and, it a and the story is what is it a screwball comedy or what is it? It's not a screwball comedy, but it starts off with well, I don't want to, to, okay, to get cool. away, but it has a very interesting beginning, okay, cool. and then it has a really interesting twist. It's a more like a romantic kind of film, but it's all about the perception. The theme of the movie is is the perception you may have of someone. And, and later on, that perception is changed, and when you see them again, you don't recognize them for who they really are. And it's fascinating, That's fascinating. Cool. No, I, <laughs> thematically, it's a very interesting film. I'm going to check that out. I'm going to check that out. Um, and, and 10 to Midnight, by the way, has been covered on the, on the podcast before. We've talked about that movie, um, which is, I, I like that movie a lot. Is sort of movie? 10 to Midnight. Oh, yeah, it's midnight disguise. Sleazy and whatever it is, it's a lot of fun. Um, do you have a favorite uh, made-for-TV movie? I, I would have to say it's Duel. I mean, I would have to say it's Steven Spielberg's Duel. I mean, that is an amazing film. Yeah. Um, I, I do like the John Carpenter film, also Someone Knows You're Alone. Is that what it's called? Oh, or oh someone... Someone's Watching Me? Oh, yeah, you're right. Someone's the, Watching Me. The it, it's Hunt a really... Say it again? The Lauren Hunt movie? Yes, yeah, it's yeah. really good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's good. You're right. That is good. That's a really good movie as well. Yeah, you know, I love his stuff in general. That, that one's actually I didn't see that until just I think this year for the first time I finally saw that. Which yeah, I saw it when it came out on DVD. I'm really liking the fact that Warner is releasing a lot of um, made for TV series and made for TV movies in their vault archive collection, whatever that's called. I, I, there's some great treasures there. Oh, yeah. They put out a ton of great TV. I, I was just thinking, like, The Deadly Tower and um, 
Uh, oh man, this the one with uh, Cloris Leachman and Dabney Coleman. It's like it's kind of like Duel, actually. It's like Pray for. No, I'm not gonna remember it now. But uh, that's a good one too. Anyway, um, which we've already covered your disaster film. Um, and then, do you have a favorite uh, film reference book or film related book? I would say my favorite uh, film related book is Hitchcock Truffaut because it's really defining what it, it, it was such an incredible encounter between two equally talented people from two different generations and um, you, you know I think uh, Cameron Crowe tried to do the same thing with Billy Wilder and and um, I just love that book because I remember reading it and and that was before you could have access to to VHS copies or DVDs or or see those movies, and you got the essence of each film through their interaction. It was pretty amazing. Oh, that's cool. Highly recommend it. Um, do you have anything you want to like future projects you want to talk about or that you can talk about that people can look forward to from you? No, I mean you know I'm really proud of the thing that came out uh, you know for the the last period of this of this year because I. I did The Exorcist, and that was a, a huge, huge uh, favorite of mine. And I love Billy Friedkin, and I love uh, William Peter Blatty, who, who I met for the first time. And and I, I was given a huge challenge, which was, you know, take those, um, you, you know, uh, shots from behind the scenes that, as great as they were, you had to really tell a story around them. And a lot of the stories had been told already, but it was trying to find an emotional hook, you know, to to talking about this film and, and really showing the footage without having to, again, explain how the vomit was made and all that stuff. <laughs> and, and, and that was a huge challenge. And um, I, I really feel very proud of the accomplishment because it, it's a lot harder than it looks. Um, I, I, I think I, I really uh, did a lot of very, very hard work with my editor on that to to really try to tell a different story using that footage as a, as a spy, but really, you, you, you know, talk about the film in a different way. So in other words, where the, the footage would tell you how a scene was made, the interviews would tell you about the emotions of the scene, you know. Yeah. And, and so you almost have to experience a documentary, I feel, you know, twice, once to look at the footage and be blown away by seeing that footage, and the second time to kind of listen to what they're saying because they don't necessarily comment on the scene. They comment on, you know, the hardship, or they comment on, on acting, or they comment on technical aspects of the film, you know. So, so um, and Friedkin was not interested in talking about how the vomit was made and how the special effects were made. So that made it even more challenging because I want him to have a presence, obviously. And 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 uh, so trying to 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 get you know people to talk, you know, for a long uh, for, for for a period of time about a film, you know, but knowing that it, it you're not going to be able to illustrate it literally. You, you know that the illustrations you have may not reflect what they're saying was was really challenging and then I went from that to back to the future, which was also a challenge because it had to be definitive you know I've explored that movie so many times in the past and I never had enough time to do it and that's why I think the first documentaries that I did for it you know were very short changed you know I mean literally I had three or four weeks to put that together you know 
and and um, and so this, I mean, had to be definitive. The problem was that we still didn't have enough time, but I, I managed. I mean, I and you know, like every everything, you know, I had a budget. Well, I had nine days of shooting, and I managed to get all those people on nine, in nine days. You know, it's like and and the satisfaction of. Bob Gale, you know, loving this, and 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 Bob Zemeckis called me, and and you know, literally said, you know, I thought I was just gonna check it out to make sure it was it was okay, but I couldn't stop watching it. It was a great compliment, and he really said it from the heart, and and it, it touched me, you know, immensely because it's not always the case, you know, you don't always get even when you do a good job, you know. You don't necessarily hear back from people. You know, you're done, you're done, you move on, and you're doing something else, you know. People are very busy, so it's not necessarily that they're not wanting to congratulate you or to tell you how much they appreciate the work, but, they, you know, they're busy. So so for, for those people to take the time to congratulate you and to, um, you, you know, uh, tell you how much they appreciate the hard work and that they feel like, you know, this is definitive, then that's really... Um, a great thing. And then I moved from that to working with Tom Grain, you know, another great producer who I, I've, I've wanted to collaborate with for, for years, you know, on, on the Avatar uh, Blu-ray uh, documentary that was, you know, gigantic. Yeah. And then, you, you, you know, I, I go from one thing to the next and it's pretty exciting, you yeah. know. No, so I, I feel... That's great stuff. I mean, you know, I feel very blessed, you know. I don't take it for granted. And I embrace it, and I, I try to live the moment, you know, because as we know, you know, that could all be gone. So I, I really um, i am very, very lucky. Well, I was going to say, you, you know, you've been and, and continue to be a pioneer in the, the field of, you know, DVD special features. And I, as a big movie fan, always look forward to everything that you um, are a part of, you know, everything you're involved with, you know, because you, you, you come from it come to it from a film fan's point of view and I think, you know, a lot of people really appreciate that, so um, you know, I'm always looking for your new stuff, so. Well, thanks so much, I mean, you know, I, I'm very flattered, obviously, but it's <clears throat> but, but I have to tell you, it's great fun you know, like, to have conversations with people like you, you know, who are so enthusiastic about the same stuff I'm enthusiastic about, you, you, you know, and to, to, to even realize that even though we've known each other for a few months now, you never told me that you like Charles Bronson. <laughs> I know. I don't know how <laughs> yeah. that didn't come up. And, and, and uh, uh, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not the only one. And there's a, um, a guy who, who uh, works at TCM uh, for whom I'm doing a, a television series who is a huge Bronson fan. <laughs> and, and you should interview him. He's absolutely amazing. You know, he's a producer himself. And, and he, he, he is absolutely uh, the biggest. Bronson kind I've ever met, and and we we just have a ball, like just saying, did you ever see this one of you? And 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 we we just send each other's, we just send each other emails about Charles Bronson all the time. Oh, that so is fantastic. I'd love to talk to him. That's that's really cool. That's really cool. But but anyway, I know I got to let you go, Laurent. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this interview. I can't. Well, but thanks for your interest, and let me know if you need anything else. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you again. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at. GGTMC.com. You can call the gentleman at 206 666 5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnight cinema 
at gmail.com. Thank you.